1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, verses 17 through 24. Uh, we've reached roughly the halfway mark of our study in 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'm glad you're sticking with it. <laughs> I think uh, we'd all agree that no matter how challenging and difficult um, Paul's message is, that it is a tract for our times. Uh, no matter how hard and even awkward at times parts of the message are, I hope we'd all agree that this is a message that the church badly needs to hear uh, today. Paul has been, he, Paul's been dealing with the confused thinking of the Corinthians, uh, particularly in the areas of sexuality for the last couple of chapters. Back in chapter 5, he, he had to address a case of, of incest. In chapter 6, Corinthian believers going to temple prostitutes, the temple of Aphrodite within the city of Corinth. And uh, now here in chapter 7, he's he's addressing another concern, another extreme really. There were those who who seemed to think that celibacy is is really the only way to, to live for God's glory if you're a Christian. They so devalued marriage. Uh, and, and some even thought that because they were married to an unbeliever that they needed to get a divorce if they were going, going to be holy. Surely the unbeliever was going to be a contaminant in their lives, they thought. Now Paul, Paul addresses that issue back in verses 12 through 16. There were, there were members in the church of Corinth who were already married when they were converted, and yet their spouse remained an unbeliever. And, uh, and they were wondering what to do. Should we, should we get a divorce? Uh, the, the thinking again went, surely they will be a pollutant in my life. But Paul says, look, it's actually the influence runs the other way. It's actually the unbelieving spouse who is made holy on account of the believing spouse. And he says, otherwise, the children would be unclean but as it is, they are holy. Now, last week, we sort of skipped over those words to maintain the focus on Paul's teaching regarding uh, marriage and divorce questions. So let me just briefly touch on those before we get to our text today. What is Paul saying when he says that the household is in some sense holy on account of one partner's embracing of the gospel? Clearly, Paul does not mean that the unbeliever becomes personally holy, you know, as if by osmosis, simply by being married to a believer, that person is changed somehow. As Paul anticipates in verses uh, 15 and 16, the unbeliever may very well remain an unbeliever. They may, in fact, leave the marriage altogether. He, he recognizes that is a real possibility. So Paul isn't teaching here salvation by association. And so to help us, I think Paul gives a, an illustration in the second half of verse 14. He says that the situation with an unbelieving spouse is somewhat analogous to the situation with children. And he says your children, simply by virtue of belonging to one believing parent, being the child of one believing parent, have a, a unique status, a special status. They are, he says, not unclean, they are holy. Now, that language is important. It's, it, it's an Old Testament category. Language of clean and unclean and holy. In the Old Testament, 
the unclean were, were shut out from the covenant community. They were not able to attend the assemblies as, as members of Israel when God's people came together to worship. But the child of even one believing parent, Paul says, is, is not in that situation. No, Paul says they are holy. They belong to the covenant community. They have been set apart in a unique sense. We might say they are insiders, not outsiders, members of the church, not unclean but holy by virtue of being the child of one believing parent. Now, I was tempted to stop today and do a whole sermon on this, but I decided we need to keep moving. Um, but just as an aside, I think this is related to why we baptize the children of believers. Because from the beginning of God's dealings with his people, he has always, he has always included the children of believing parents within the covenant community and has ordained that they ought to receive the sign of that belonging, circumcision in the old, baptism in the new. And it seems, it seems from the way Paul makes this appeal to the Corinthians that they were, they were well aware of this pattern, this principle, this way of thinking. He doesn't even go into depth or detail. He just mentions it in passing. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We focused on the, the, the uh, teaching of Paul relative to the matter of marriage and divorce last week. So if you missed that, you can go back and listen to what we said last week. But I want to come to our passage today in verses 17 through 24. Because again, Paul steps aside in a way from his focus on marriage and, uh, and singleness in this chapter uh, to talk about, I think, a vitally important principle for, for living the Christian life. So let's take a look at it in verses 17 through 24. And as, as we read... Just be on the lookout for the, the words call and called because Paul's going to use that language in two different senses. And he's going to talk about Christian contentment, about being content with our lot in life and necessary to finding and maintaining what somebody has called the rare jewel of Christian contentment is understanding the nature of God's calls in our lives. Put it this way, to understand his call is the key to finding true lasting contentment. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 7, picking it up in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. 
Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Well, I wonder if you would agree with me that we live in a culture that breeds discontentment. We are taught, I think, to always want more, to always desire more. We've been, we've been schooled not to be satisfied with our present lot. There's always something bigger, something better out there. The, the grass is greener on the other side, so don't stay here. You know, the old saying, bloom where you're planted. Sounds almost incomprehensible in a culture that, that privileges the next big thing, the next adventure, the next opportunity, the next great experience. And of course, that way of thinking has tragic consequences for the Christian life. When we're taught to always aspire to what's next, and that's the way we live and the way that we think, then dissatisfaction and discontentment become commonplace, don't they? We're we're left feeling restless, never satisfied, always looking for the next big great thing. And I think that's true for us, as those of us who who are followers of Christ, just as much as it's true for, for anyone else. I want you to listen to this description then and, and just decide if it, if it sounds close to home at all. If you use social media at all, maybe have that tucked away in your mind too. I want you to listen to this. I look at others and sometimes I get jealous. Sometimes I wish their calling was my calling. I see others doing big, exciting things for God. Maybe in terms of the church, maybe it's missions or leading a Bible study. Maybe outside of the church, it's an exciting job opportunity, career advancement. Meanwhile, I'm at home doing small, seemingly unimportant things. Or I I go to work, um, I take care of my family, and I go to church on Sundays. And and that pretty much sums up my life. Nothing big, nothing that's going to get any attention, nothing that's going to get a bunch of likes or double clicks And it's all kind of depressing. I find myself wanting more. My life is quiet and boring, mundane, maybe even lame. And sometimes I feel like my life is just without any purpose at all. Does that sound familiar to you? That's somebody describing how social media makes them feel. Many of us struggle to to be content in our calling. And so, as we take a look at this passage and see what it has to say to us about calling, let me start with a, with a quote from a, a theologian 500 years ago. And I think, I think he nails it in terms of orienting us to the message of Paul in this text. Here's what he says. Each individual has his own living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post so that he may not heedlessly wander throughout life. A calling that functions as a kind of century post. Uh, Going back to that old statement, right? Bloom where you're planted. That in many ways sums up what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. For Paul, 
the answer to the discontentment that our culture of more, more, more generates is bound up with understanding God's call in our lives. Now, if you look closely at this passage, you'll you'll notice that there are actually two callings. The majority of the time in this passage when the language of call is used, it refers to God's special, sovereign, saving, effective call by which through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he called us to, into union with Jesus Christ. He called us to new life. He renovated us. He changed us at a deep and profound level, enabling us to answer the call of the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ. That's the effectual call of God, and that's the majority sense of call in this text. But if you look at verse 17, Paul uses the word call in a, in a different way. Here it refers not to God's sovereign, saving, effective, and transforming call in the gospel. Instead, it refers to the unique, uh, particular vocations in our lives. So take a look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. We've been called by God to an assignment in life, a a lot in life as husbands and wives or singles, as fathers and mothers, as children and siblings and, and, and other earthly callings as uh, doctors and businessmen or businesswomen, lawyers, uh, teachers, craftsmen, and, and so on. God has given us in his providence a calling in life, a lot in life, a vocation. And so there are these two senses in which we receive God's call as Christians. The first is the saving call of God in the gospel, which, which remakes and re- renovates us and makes us new at a fundamental level. And the second is the the call of God in his providence, given to each of us in the various circumstances of our daily lives. And our struggle, I think, with dissatisfaction and discontentment can very often result, not saying this is the only cause, but it can very often result when we confuse the two when we get them mixed up, when we root our identity in the vocational call of God that is focused on the the web of horizontal relationships and earthly responsibilities that God has given to us. See, when when we look there for our identity, we end up inevitably placing a weight upon our jobs, our marriages, our friendships, our earthly vocations that they were not ever intended to bear. When you look for your identity and worth in your daily vocation, you will never, ever be satisfied. But when you begin to understand, if if you're a Christian, that your identity is in fact rooted in the saving, sovereign, effective call of God and his redeeming grace in the gospel then you'll begin to see that success or failure at work, success or failure in in parenting, 
uh, your inadequacies as a, as a child or a parent. You know, you're doing well academically, you're doing well athletically, or whatever. You'll begin to see that ultimately those things do not define who you are. Because your identity is not rooted or grounded in your performance in your earthly vocation. Why? Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your security and your identity lie elsewhere. They're secured elsewhere in the vertical call of God through the gospel by which he made you new. And so recognize, this is what we need to recognize, that your real, true identity as a Christian is rooted in Christ. It's rooted there. And then when you come to terms with that, you'll, you'll begin to find some freedom from the daily, relentless demands of a culture demanding more and more and more from the enslaving temptation to always be searching for the next great thing, the next great adventure, convinced by the world that you can't really be complete without academic success or career advancement or whatever. The gospel teaches us you can be free from all of that. And so Paul wants Christians to, to be free of discontentment, the kind of dissatisfaction that apparently troubled the Corinthians and, and almost certainly is, is troubling some of us. He wants us to be content, to find the rare jewel of Christian contentment, to be, uh, to be blooming where we are planted. That's the message Paul has for us in, in verse 17. Lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. And notice, notice that he repeats the, the point as a basic principle three times in this passage. So sometimes you might be used to having a three-point sermon making three different points. Well, today you have a one-point sermon making the same point three times. Uh, he says it again in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So when you were savingly called, when you were, when you were converted... And God gave you a new identity in and through your union with Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that you abandon your earthly lot or desert your century post, as someone put it. Bloom where you're planted. And he says it again at the end of the passage in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so apparently some of the Corinthians were having trouble reconciling the, the radical nature of their call to new life in Christ with the mundane and ordinary nature of their earthly callings. They, they wanted to take radical steps, radical action. So some were thinking about walking out of their marriages, uh, leaving their jobs, abandoning their posts, Surely those things have to be set aside and left behind. Surely there is something bigger and better and more important out there for me now that I follow Christ. That's what they were saying. And maybe you've said something similar to yourself. That surely there's something bigger, better, more satisfying for me than this. To which Paul says, bloom where you're planted. Discover the rare jewel 
of Christian contentment. And understand that contentment isn't found, isn't to be found in your earthly vocation, but from your redemption. You see, it's, it's not found in your life's work, but in your life's Lord. Contentment is not found in the work you do for God, but in the work God has done in and through you by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where contentment is found. Look there, Paul is saying. And to drive that point home, Paul then mentions two cases that were particularly relevant in the Corinthian context. Just to show them, okay, here's how this teaching gets worked out in real life. There were two situations, especially where the the Corinthians were were attempting to change their earthly lot and social status because they were discontent. And Paul instead calls them to bloom where they're planted. Uh, The first one is in verses 18 and 19, and it, it has to do with circumcision. Now, circumcision had become, you know, the great badge of belonging, the great badge of one's Jewishness. But in a Greek culture, and given the radical impact of the gospel about Jesus that sets us free from Old Testament rites and regulations, there were some in Corinth of Jewish background who who wanted to distance themselves now from their their Jewishness. Uh, historical records actually recount that there were some who went under, under they, they underwent uh, surgical procedures and attempts to remove their circumcision. And so Paul says, it makes sense of what Paul is getting at here, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. But there were all others on the, the opposite Extreme, right? There was the opposite reaction at Corinth. Those who were of Gentile uh, descent upon their conversion, making the mistake of thinking, well, if I'm going to be a really serious disciple, really serious follower of Christ, then I need, I need to be circumcised. And so verse 17, was anyone at the call of his, uh, time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. In other words, be content as you are, because the gospel is not about superficial externals. Rather, verse 19, Paul says, neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what really matters. That's what really counts. Paul says something similar in Galatians, doesn't he? Is it Galatians 6.15? When paraphrasing it, Paul says, it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that counts for anything, but new creation. That's what matters. So you see, what Paul is saying is that now that God has supernaturally worked in our lives by his spirit, calling us out of death into life by his grace, given us this new identity in Jesus What really matters is living out of this new creation in a life that pleases the Lord, that seeks to honor the Lord and give him the glory from day to day, keeping his 
commandments. Learning to focus on a life that is vertically oriented. Godward. That is seeking to please him. Paul says that is what truly counts. That's what matters most. And I think for a number of reasons, that's a word for our times. It's a challenge to us. We, we are often so caught up in the rat race. We are often so preoccupied with finding the perfect job, the perfect place to live, with whether or not we, we fit in with a particular social group or class of people to which we aspire to belong. Constantly asking the question, who's out? Who's in? How do I get in? How do I stay in? We, we focus often on making our lifestyle correspond to the expectations of our chosen social group. And let's just be honest, we, we do it. We do it. And often we don't even realize we're doing it. And we can be driven. We can be governed by those things. But Paul is saying, Look, things like that don't really matter. In the eyes of God, those things don't really count for anything. If you've been called by God into new life through the gospel, what really counts, what really counts, is living out the new life and the new identity God has given you, manifested in a life that pleases him. The way of putting it is you can be Holy in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. The Corinthians were in danger of defining themselves and of locating their identity in whether or not they had the right badges of social belonging. They were in danger of, I think, rooting their identity and worth in, in earthly callings, their, their earthly lot and not in the saving call of God that changes us forever. What really matters, Paul is saying, is new creation. What really counts is joyfully keeping the commandments of God. Now, the second example to which Paul applies this principle, it's found in, in verses 21 through 23. And this time, Paul applies it to the issue of slavery in his own context. Apparently, some at Corinth thought that the, the radical call of the gospel that sets us free from sin's guilt and power uh, ought to immediately work itself out in liberation from any form of human servitude. Now, a couple of qualifiers here. To, to understand how Paul addresses this whole issue, we need to recognize, first of all, that slavery in, in Paul's day was not about race. Um, that's not to say that the institution didn't have its problems. It did. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But I think we can so easily get sidetracked and confused when we read about slavery in the Bible because we, we tend to, to read into it the institution of slavery that was a particular blight and problem in our own nation's history. Right, the product of race-based prejudice, the practice of man-stealing, of taking someone from their home, stealing them from their homeland in Africa, forcing them into demeaning, dehumanizing servitude and treating them as nothing more than property. 
is a profound evil that's still bearing bitter fruit today. But that's not really what slavery was like in, in Paul's day. Certainly some slaves had terrible lives, difficult lives. But others were, were skilled professionals. Some were hired as tutors. Some were businessmen and businesswomen uh, charged with stewarding the resources of that particular household. They were often salaried and so they could buy themselves out of, uh, of slavery and set, setting themselves free. They could be bought by others to be set free. Now you, you could be made a slave for a criminal act, but I think the majority of cases involved people actually selling themselves into slavery to deal with some kind of personal debt. Now, that being said, slavery was still not a position that anyone aspired to. It was considered low class, if you like. And so when Paul deals with slavery here, he is, I think, at once immensely cautious and at the same time realistic. He, he has nothing positive to say about slavery. And in verse 21, he even encourages slaves to avail themselves of freedom if it becomes at all possible for them. Take the opportunity, he says. And so he's not endorsing the practice, but he doesn't want anyone to think that the the radical spiritual liberation the gospel has brought into their lives must also mean that slaves should immediately rise up and revolt against their human masters. And so, what's the principle I think we can take from this and try to apply to our own context and situation? I think the principle is whatever our earthly vocation, Paul's going to make it clear, whatever our earthly vocation, it is relativized by our being called into union with Christ. Let me show you why I'm saying that. First of all, for those who are slaves, in verse 22, Paul says, That when the gospel gives you a new identity and brings spiritual freedom, your earthly lot becomes less ultimate. So Paul says, he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. And likewise, for those in the Corinthian church who were masters or free, uh, their social status was also less ultimate. Take a look at verse 22 again. Likewise, He who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Okay, so you see what matters most in in Paul's mind. It isn't your social standing, your slavery, or your freedom, but being rightly related to God in and through Christ. That's what matters most. Find your identity there, he's saying. Root your significance there, and you will be set free from trying to find your contentment in your earthly vocation or your earthly lot. And as he goes on to make clear, what matters most is that you were bought with a price. He uses that language of redemption once again, doesn't he? Just as he did earlier when he was talking to Corinthian believers who were going to the temple of Aphrodite and uniting themselves with prostitutes, one of the ways he challenged them is to recognize Dear believer, you have been bought with the price, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You are not your own, but you belong in body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is applying that same reality here. Whether free or slave, you have been bought 
at a price. Christ gave himself to make you his. And so those who live in earthly servitude, there's a spiritual freedom that they enjoy. Jesus has purchased you. You belong to him. And those of you who think you are free to live however you please, he says when you come to Christ, there's a, there is a slavery to his mastery that is part and parcel of true freedom itself. You were bought at a price. You are now his and his rule defines and directs and governs your life because you are not your own. You belong to him. And then he says in verse 23, I think speaking here metaphorically, do not become the bondservants of men. He doesn't mean that if you are a bondservant of men that you've somehow done something wrong or you're in some kind of position that renders you sinful. He's not, he's not contradicting what he has just been saying. Instead, he's saying, I think, don't let the opinions of men dominate your thinking on this point. Right? The, world, the world insists that social standing, your earthly lot, is what matters most. Paul's saying, I'm telling you that your identity and and status in Jesus Christ is really what matters most. Now, I think this is a battle many of us have to face and and fight each and and every day. Because our our culture and sometimes our, our own hearts are telling us, your social status, your lot in life, is really what should be your greatest concern because it is what matters most. Your job, your success, your connections, those are the things that count. And then there are all of the other pressures of life that call us and have claim upon us and and drive us to live up to the expectations of others. And Paul is saying, dear believer, there is a freedom from that kind of oppression in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your identity, your worth, your significance, it is not found there. It's found found in him. It's fixed and secure in him. Not in your social standing, but in the risen Savior who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You belong to him. So live for him. Don't let the opinions of man be the master of your life. Let the Lord Jesus Christ reign in your heart. And so when you find yourself wanting someone else's calling, I mean, look, we've, we've all done it, haven't we? Desired someone else's calling, wishing we had theirs, wishing we were in their shoes and not our own. When the restless sense of not knowing who you are undermines your ability to settle down and be content in the life the Lord has assigned. Or when you find it hard to to bloom where you're planted. It might be, it might be because you've confused these two calls. You've been looking for true significance and happiness and satisfaction in the call to an earthly vocation 
when all of the time you should have been seeking your true significance and satisfaction and security in the call of God in and through the gospel, which gives you a new identity in your union with Jesus Christ. So look there, Paul is saying. Because your heart, your restless heart, will always be restless until it finds its rest in the Lord. Remember Augustine, who used those words similar to that in his confessions. Contentment, however, at last will be found when we are planted, because who we really are is not determined by what we do, but who God has made us to be in Jesus Christ. And so may the Lord help us, may he help us to to turn to him and find and experience true freedom, which he gives us from the culture of more, more and more, and, and from the slavery of the expectations of others in our lives. May we find the true freedom that comes from knowing that our identity is fixed and secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who bought us, who purchased us, who redeemed us for himself at a very, very great price. Let's pray together. Father, we, we feel that these words do speak directly to us and, and to our lives. We know the restlessness of heart about which we have been speaking. And we pray that through the call of the gospel, that we all would find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I prayed earlier, I, I pray once again that those who are here who have yet to find rest in Christ, that you would expose the bankruptcy of life without him and draw them and all of us this morning to find our rest and our security and identity in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.